You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. I think most of us here at CBC are quite aware that Amazon is hiring thousands of people. Maybe some of you have heard that? Thousands upon thousands of people are being hired by Amazon, and they're moving into our community. And of course, we welcome them, and we want to love them with the love of Jesus Christ. Amazon has experienced astronomical success. But what I want us to do is, I want us to imagine two different employees that are just recently hired. They both have the same experience, same education, same gifting. They both come on at base salaries. It's their first year working in Amazon. But one of the two is told by her direct supervisor that Jeff Bezos has said, I'm going to give you a $5 million bonus five years from now. The founder of Amazon is promising a $5 million bonus. All she has to do is work for five years. If we reflect on these two employees, the first employee who just makes base, the base salary, it's quite possible that he might complain over the course of a period of time. He might gripe against Bezos and the rest of the managers and the supervisors. He may think that he is mistreated, but not this second employee. This woman is thinking about the fact that no matter what the next five years looks like, $5 million is coming her way. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. She's not going to say anything. She's not going to do anything that might jeopardize that possibility. She's going to work faithfully. She's going to honor Bezos and her direct supervisor. There aren't going to be any problems whatsoever because she has a payday coming. Isn't it interesting that often we're motivated by money? Money which is temporal, it's fleeting, it's truly unsatisfying. But we will do almost anything for money. What is the motivation for the believer at work? If a believer suffers unjustly, what will keep that believer from honoring God in the workplace. That's what Peter is going to talk about today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. He's going to try to answer the question, why can we suffer unjustly in the workplace? And he's going to give us two very important reasons. But before we get to those reasons, we need to understand what he's going to argue. He's going to argue that present pain leads to permanent gains. That whatever pain we deal with in this short-term season of work, 
no matter how long we work, whether it's a handful of years or decades, how we work, how we honor God in the workplace will determine what the permanent gains are like for you and me. And I think we've missed this because we often don't recognize that work is what we do perhaps more than anything else in our lives. Now, some would say, well, what about sleep? Well, how many of you get eight hours of sleep a night? I mean, seriously, very few of us probably do. You and I are working more than we're sleeping. We are consumed with work. What that means is work is perhaps the greatest opportunity we have to live for Christ and to witness for Christ. I've always said that work is worship. So the greatest expression perhaps I have of worship is how do I work for the Lord? And that's true for you, whether you're working in the church or working in the marketplace. Present pain leads to permanent gains. So let's look at 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25. We've entitled this series, How to Live in a Spiritually Hostile World. And what we know is our world is becoming increasingly more hostile toward believers in Jesus Christ. And not just towards Christians, it's just becoming a hostile place for everyone. So this letter that Peter has written is helpful for each and every one of us. Why are we able to suffer unjustly? Peter's first reason is given in verses 18 through 20. Suffer unjustly because of God's grace. What Peter argues is God gives a form or an expression of grace to those of us who seek to honor him in the workplace. And there are experiences that we will be able to enjoy for all of eternity based upon how we steward our responsibilities at work. So look with me at verse 18. Peter begins in verse 18, and you can see the very first word, servants. Some of your English versions will have slaves. Now, I know this is a difficult time to even mention that word in church. But what we need to understand is there is a difference between the atrocities committed against our African-American sisters and brothers and those that were committed in the first century. In our country, it was based upon race. In the first century in Rome, it was based upon economics. Now, I am not suggesting that slavery in any way, shape, or form is ever acceptable. God hates it, and so do I. And you do as well. We don't probably even need to argue about that. But what we do need to understand is what Peter is saying and who he's saying it to. But before we get there, how many times do you think a form of the word servant is used in the Bible? Over a thousand times. A form of the word servant is used over a thousand times in Scripture. What that tells me is servanthood is important to God. So let's think this through biblically. Abraham, Moses, David, and Job are called by God my servant. Peter, Paul, James, and Jude, they start their letters by saying, I am a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Jesus came to earth as 
a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was all about service. And we are called, number one, as servants, number two, to serve. It's a part of our spiritual DNA. So now with that being laid out, the term servants or slaves here is an unusual term. It's only used three other times in the New Testament. And it's a particular word that means household servants. In first century Rome, individuals would come into families and they would serve in various capacities. They would often be included as a part of the family. They would make, at times, even a handsome salary where they could buy their freedom back. They had great potential to succeed in their culture. That doesn't mean that the slavery is right. It certainly isn't because they weren't truly free. But Peter wants us to understand that these individuals whose work situation while it may not be the bleakest, it's not nearly what ours is. Now, I know you feel like you have a master, and in a sense, we all have employers. So this passage is helpful for us as well. Some want to say, well, how can you take a master-slave relationship and tie it into an employer-employee relationship? I think it's relatively simple. Because what Peter is doing is he's arguing in what could be perceived as one of the worst conditions, being a slave in the first century Rome, what he's going to say works for them. And if it works for them, those of us who have OSHA, who can file grievances against our employer, who have all kinds of blessings that come from when we feel like we're unjustly suffering, if it worked for them, how much more so does it work for us? This is for the 21st century, just like it was for the first century. So notice what Peter does. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Now, I call submission and suffering Christian expletives. Now, we're joking about that. We call these the S words. But here's the reality. To many of us, they are like expletives. Submit? Haven't you seen the bumper sticker, question authority? I mean, that's how I live. I'm not going to submit to anyone. I don't want to submit. Well, the reality is none of us want to submit in our own flesh. We want to be our own boss. We don't want to answer to anyone. But once you and I became followers of Christ, we recognized that submission and suffering and even servanthood, those are gifts from God. Those are privileges that were given to represent Christ and to represent the church of Jesus Christ. So what seems like a curse word doesn't have to be. Now, this is very important. In wrestling and mixed martial arts, submissions are involuntary. You can get submitted. I see it happen all the time. In biblical submission, it's voluntary. I make a choice of my will. I am going to lay down even my perceived rights for another. 
In this case, my boss. The leaders that I give an account to. The same is true for you. Now, what's important to understand is, in this verse, it says, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect. Almost every English version translates it that way. The word is actually fear. With all fear. I believe when Peter uses the term fear, he almost always uses it in our relationship with God. He just got through doing that in chapter 2, verse 17, the verse we just looked at last Sunday, the verse previous to the verse we're looking at now. The implication is we ought to fear God first and foremost. If we fear God, we will naturally respect or honor our employer or our boss. If we don't fear God, if we don't think much of Him, we are not going to honor or respect our earthly boss. This is very important to understand. So if our fear is first and foremost focused on God, everything can take care of itself. Because we recognize our true master is God the Father. It's not our earthly boss. So we realize we're working for another. We're working for God. We're not working for Amazon. We're not working for Microsoft. We're not working for a public school or a Christian school. We are working for God himself. That's who we fear. Now, immediately, when you hear the word submission, and we're to submit to our earthly employer, we think, well, I don't want to submit. And there are plenty of times that I shouldn't submit. And then we go so far as to think, I'm a nice gal. I'm a nice guy. I mean, I deserve to be treated in a particular way. And my employer is fortunate to have me. Don't they know who I am? So we assume that every boss should be wonderful. Well, Peter deals with that straight away in verse 18. Second half of verse 18, he says, I want you to be submissive to your masters, not only to those who are good and gentle. Ah, that's who we like. The good and the gentle. But also to those who are unreasonable, harsh, malicious, perverted, crooked. That's how our English versions translate this term. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands but I'm guessing many of you have scoliosis. I do too. Scoliosis is a curvature of the spine. The Greek word that our translators don't know how to translate necessarily is scolios. We get our English word scoliosis from it. I think perhaps the most helpful translation is crooked. Morally, ethically, financially, in any and every way, we can work for people that are messed up. We can work for corporations that are messed up. And to find an employer like I have, Crossroads Bible Church, that's going to be hard for most of us. I'm blessed. Most of us will not be as blessed. And what does Peter say? He says, submit 
Submit when you don't like it. Submit when you don't feel like you want to submit. Submit when your rights are trampled. Submit when you are disrespected, dishonored, unappreciated. Submit. Come under the authority of your boss. Place yourself under your boss's authority. Now, let me answer the question that you're all thinking right now. And if you're going to take a soundbite from my sermon, perhaps take this one. Because I am frequently taken out of context. Because we don't listen as well as we should. You don't always have to obey your boss. There will be times, and they could be coming upon us rather quickly, where you're going to be asked to do things that are outright sin. Every Christian should disobey his or her boss when something like that happens. If you're told that you cannot profess faith in Christ in the marketplace, if you're told to commit acts of immorality or acts that are unethical, obviously you say, I will not do that. And you even may have to make a decision that you will resign from your job. Now, let me go further. And you can read into this all you want, or you can choose to just let this stand at face value. There are multiple scenarios where the issue at hand may not be outright sin for every believer, but your conscience may be violated. I think when your conscience is violated, if you believe God is calling you to take a stand for whatever reason, and that involves resigning even from your place of employment, God bless you. I support you. And I want to say this as your pastor, I, I hurt for you. I hurt for you if that is a decision that you ever have to make. However, we need to go into some of these decisions with eyes wide open and realize there will be consequences for the decisions that we make. In the course of my ministry, what I've seen again and again is Christians who are prepared to take their stand, but they don't want to suffer any consequence for it. They want the Lord to protect them and bless them in spite of any stand that they take. I'm telling you right now, the Bible doesn't support that. You may receive God's protection, but there's no guarantee. You may be persecuted. People may become even more hostile toward you. You may lose relationships. But if your conscience demands that you take a stand, take your stand and suffer the consequences. If it's a sin issue, every single one of us should take a stand and suffer the consequences. Present pain leads to permanent gain. It's not going to be fun for any of us, but we have eternity ahead of us. Verse 19 is now going to explain the reason, the fundamental reason that we can endure unjust suffering. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 starts with the word for. You may be interested to know, so does verses 20 and 21. So when the word for is used in our Bibles, it's explaining something. It's helping flesh out, in this case, why we're commanded to submit to our employer. For this 
finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Suffer unjustly because of God's grace. Here, the term translated favor is actually the word grace. We're going to see the word translated favor again in verse 20, and that's when I'll explain it. Just understand for right now, the word favor or grace appears twice in these two verses. And you'll find in verse 19, Peter challenges us to bear up under sorrows, plural. In other words, there's numerous pains. There's numerous sorrows and griefs that come to us in the workplace and in life. That's a part of what God is calling us to, to suffer and to bear up under sorrows. Now, if you look at this verb translated bears up, it's only used two other times in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Timothy 3 of Paul's persecutions, which were many. But then it's used in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 of the temptations that you and I need to bear up under. Here, it's suffering in the midst of your workplace. And that can be youth who have jobs at Starbucks or are tutoring all the way up to those who are lawyers and doctors. It involves everyone. We are called to bear up under the weight, the pressures, the stress, the grievances that come to us in the workplace. I first started lifting weights when I was 12 years old in seventh grade. I was so tiny that I could not wear a short sleeve shirt. I probably still shouldn't wear a short sleeve shirt. I would only lift weights in the privacy of my bedroom. And I had what was called the Spalding Power Rings, a 110-pound weight set that if I still had it, I could sell it on Amazon Marketplace and make, make a fortune. Or is it Facebook Marketplace? I don't know. But I could sell this. This is retro stuff. I got to the point where I was strong enough to, you know, clean and jerk the weight over my head, put it on my back, and I decided I would squat the Power Ring set. I did a number of reps. In fact, my mind is remembering not two or three, 50, 60, maybe a hundred, a lot of reps. It's probably two or three. I came up out of the squat position. I'll never forget this. I'm down, come up, lost control, fell over face first on my bed with 110 pounds on my neck. <laughs> well, what do you do when that happens? You start screaming. Dad, Mom, Tim, help me. I'm dying here. Well, that went on for several minutes. I realized no one was home. <laughs> I'm stuck as a prepubescent 12-year-old with 110 pounds on my neck, and I, I, I can't get out. So I had to bear it. And it went on for what seemed to be hours. It was probably only minutes. And eventually, God performed a miracle, and I was able to tip the weight to one side, clear my neck, and get out of that death trap. But I've remembered that moment, and I'm sad to say many other moments like it, 
at the gym even, in front of people, getting that bar stuck on your chest or, you know, just making an absolute fool of yourself. I think of all the exercises, whether it's a deadlift where you're pushing through the floor and raising weight or a squat where you're descending and ascending or a bench press, you're pushing weight off your chest. Burdens, weight, what does this do to us? It strengthens physical muscles. What does bearing burdens and weights of stress, anxiety, suffering, and injustice do for us? It increases spiritual strength and stamina. We may not like some of the things that we have to endure. We may get ourselves caught in the most compromising of situations, feeling the weight of a trial or a sorrow, but God is capable of working it for your good and for His glory. Verse 19 is powerful because verse 19 makes it clear that we are capable of bearing burdens. We're capable of whatever weight God brings our way. Now, in verse 20, what Peter does is he amplifies verses 18 and 19. He goes further. In the first half of the verse, you can put a minus sign. He's going to tackle the negative first. In the second half of verse 20, you can put a plus or an addition sign because he's going to tackle the positive. So let's get our vegetables out of the way. Let's eat them first. Let's talk about the negative. Then we'll move to the filet mignon, the positive, in verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? The word credit is only used here in the entire New Testament. It's a synonym for grace or for favor in this context. Peter is saying, if you're punching in late to work, if you're leaving early, if you're stealing, I mean borrowing supplies from the office, if you're viewing internet porn, or if you're taking advantage of social media accounts on work hours, guess what? There's no credit to you. You've got what's coming to you. If you get demoted, if you get fired, that's on you. Let me go even further. Dear friends of mine over the course of many years have lost their jobs for sharing their faith at work. The first question I ask them is, were you sharing your faith during work hours when you should have been working for your employer? In almost every case, the answer is yes. And I have to be the one to tell them, I'm proud of you for being a bold witness, but I'm not proud of you because you were actually stealing from your employer. And that's a poor witness. Work is worship, and you used work time to witness when your life and your work ethic should have been the witness. We can share our faith before work, after work. We might even have the freedom to share our faith during the lunch hour. But when we're paid to work, we need to work unless there's very unusual circumstances because most employers that I know, including Christian employers, don't necessarily appreciate it. Here's the positive in verse 20. But, I love this, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, 
you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. What we see is two uses of the verb endure. So we had bear up under in verse 19. Now we have two uses of the word endure. What does Peter expect? That work is going to be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears at times. It's going to be just simply enduring, persevering for the glory of God, honoring your employer, even when your employer doesn't honor you. But if you endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, I told you we would discuss finds favor. Favor, which is the Greek word for grace, is not talking about God's free, unmerited grace offered to you. It's talking about reward in this context. Credit and favor is a reference to reward. When you submit to your boss, when you honor the Lord in the workplace, he will actually reward you one day based upon how you've honored him at work. We use the Amazon illustration the five years and the five million dollars. At the end of our lives, God is going to look at our stewardship of work and he's going to see the hours, the years, the decades that we've spent at work and he's going to want to know, how did you glorify me through your work? How did you steward your time, your talents, your treasure, the truth of my word, all the relationships that you had at work? How did you honor me? And then he will determine how he will reward us for all of eternity. Work matters. And I want you to hear this. You are all in full-time Christian ministry. We've said this as a church family. You are pastors, you are missionaries, you are leaders in the workplace. Your role is no different than my role in terms of the possibility for reward and impact. So many times people will say, if only I could be a pastor. If I could just be a missionary, then God would be pleased with me. No. Jesus spent 30 years in the marketplace and three years in what we call full-time Christian ministry. Jesus cares about the marketplace. That's where the church grows. That's where the church thrives. Not in buildings like this. Our goal on Sunday mornings is to send you out having been refreshed and renewed for Monday through Saturday where you can work and be God's witness. Present pain leads to permanent gain. Your work is going to make an eternal difference. So we've seen the need to suffer unjustly because of God's grace, because of his favor, because of the reward he wants to give. Now we're going to see a second reason to suffer unjustly. Suffer unjustly because of Christ's example. What Peter does in verses 21 through 25 is he pivots. He pivots back to chapters 1 and 2. He pivots forward to chapters 3, 4, and 5. This is like the ultimate passage to help us recognize that as sojourners, as exiles, living in a spiritually hostile world, we have the opportunity to observe someone who lived his life for the glory of God. We study the Gospels. We look at 
the epistles, the book of Revelation. We go all the way back into the Old Testament, which talks about the Messiah to come, the one that we know as Jesus Christ. And we say, how did Jesus live? How can he serve as my example at work and in every other area of my life? Now, it's also important to understand that these verses are helpful for our entire lives, our entire ministry, and the entire letter of 1 Peter. So when we discuss any relationship, submitting to governing authorities, wives submitting to their husbands, everything else that we've either looked at or will look at, everything comes back to Christ's example. So look with me at verse 21. Peter minces no words, for you have been called for this purpose. What purpose, Peter? To endure suffering, verse 20. Peter says, in the same way that you've been called to salvation, you've been called to service and to submission. This is a part of our Christian calling, to suffer like our Savior. C.S. Lewis was once asked, why is it that the righteous suffer? I love Lewis's response. Why not? They're the only ones who can take it. Let that sink in. Your work relationships, your work worries, your work stresses, COVID, political, ethical, spiritual division and disunity, we're all suffering in one way, shape, or form. Maybe not like the rest of the world, but we're suffering. This is what God has called us to. And listen, we're the only ones who can take it. Do you understand that? Do I understand that? We have the Word of God. It says this is what we've been called to. This is our purpose. We've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we're also filled by the Holy Spirit of God. We have caring community. We have a body who can help us live our lives for the glory of God and to suffer through this life. No matter what comes against us, no matter who comes against us, this is our calling, and we never want to talk about it. We always want to think when we suffer, why? Why am I suffering? What did I do? The reality is, this is how God strengthens us, and this is how He allows us to be a witness to the world. Peter would say, suffering is not just a probability, it's a promise. But there's always a purpose attached to it. Notice how Peter continues, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. I love the fact that this is the first use of the verb suffer. In chapter 2, verse 21, he's been talking about it the entire way through, and from this point forward, he goes off. So if you don't like this message, just wait for the messages to come. Suffering is going to be a dominant theme. So Peter brings it out, and he says, here's the good news. We have an example. The only time this word is used in the New Testament is right here. The word was used in classical Greek of an underwriting. It was a school term. Teachers or tutors 
taught children how to trace the alphabet. Peter is saying, I want you to trace out Jesus' life. Look at the writings and learn how to imitate him. Peter now moves from writing to walking. Look at this in verse 21. We're left with an example. Why? For you to follow in his steps. This phrase was used of in his steps by Charles Sheldon, one of the greatest books ever written. Remember WWJD, what would Jesus do? That came from this very phrase. We are to walk in Jesus' steps. We are to respond the way Jesus would have us respond. I'm not looking forward to the snow. I know some of you love snow, but in the Puget Sound region, no one knows how to drive in the snow, at least not well, if they're from this part of the country. And it's just a wet, cold snow. So honestly, as a native Washingtonian, I don't get too jazzed about it. But what I know is, when there's snow over a foot or so, I don't want to get my shoes, my socks, and my insoles wet. And I don't like cold feet. Cold feet are the worst. So what do I do? I scan the ground looking for footprints. And I just try to put my feet in that other person's feet that has gone before me. That's what Peter is saying. Jesus laid it out for us. He suffered. He endured things that no other human being will ever endure. Find his footsteps, walk in them, learn from them, and replicate it at work, at home, in every area of your life. Now, is this easy? No. That's why we need one another. Caring community. That's why we need biblical teaching. We have to go through suffering as sisters and brothers in Christ. In verses 22 through 25, what Peter does is he uses Isaiah 53 as a backdrop, which is why I had Lakshmi read Isaiah 53. If you want a homework assignment, read all 12 or so verses. Go over them this week and find out how your suffering servant suffered for you and for me. So just understand, he's either quoting or alluding to Isaiah 53. Then what Peter does in verses 22 and 23 is he shares five accounts or episodes from Jesus' life. And he says, if you want to follow in his steps, if you want to learn from his example, learn from these two verses. Look at these verses with me. First of all, in verse 22, Jesus committed no sin. In other words, he was the sinless Savior of the world. Because Jesus Christ lived 33 plus years sinless, he can be our substitute. We can go to heaven because Jesus Christ fulfilled all of God's holy and righteous demands. He turned away God the Father's wrath so that we might have an eternal relationship with him. Notice Jesus did not use any deceit, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was always honest. He was always a man of integrity. No matter what suffering came against him, he honored God in all of his speech. 
Thirdly, look at verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. So here we have Jesus dealing with the atrocities of his earthly life and ministry rejected by his family until after his resurrection, rejected by the Jewish people whom he came to save, rejected even by his disciples when he needed them most, reviled by the religious leaders of his day, and then having to go to the cross to experience unimaginable suffering. I wanted to expound on the cross and all that Jesus Christ endured. But in my prep, I realized I heard one of the greatest sermons on the cross. It was preached by Pastor Kyle Evans for our Good Friday service last year. Go back to Pastor Kyle's sermon online if you want to learn more about the cross and what Jesus Christ endured for us. Let's keep reading in verse 23. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So instead of defending himself, instead of saying something like this, I am. When he said that, people fell on their faces like they were dead. Just, I am. Jesus could have fought fire with fire. He could have said anything. He could have won any argument. He could have put anyone in their place without even sinning. I mean, how good would that be? I'd love that. But I would abuse that, I'm sure. And so would you. To revile means to heap abuse on someone. Jesus heaped abuse on no one. In fact, what he did was he entrusted himself to God the Father. Every day, in every way, he understood that present pain leads to permanent gain. Now, that takes us right into verse 24, one of the most misunderstood verses in the New Testament. And he himself, this is emphatic, he himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins. He literally carried them up in his body on the cross. Here's the purpose clause. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. This verse teaches substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin and that because Jesus Christ died for our sin, he allows us to now live for his honor and glory and to put to death sin in our lives. That's a part of the purpose in Christ's suffering on the cross, that we would welcome suffering, that we would welcome hardship, and we would put to death sinful attitudes, sinful actions that come from suffering or any other type of perhaps overt sin or response to it. Jesus was wounded so we might be healed. Now, the reason I say that this verse is so controversial and misunderstood is there are many teachers, often called prosperity teachers, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, who will teach that healing is in the atonement, physical healing. The problem with that is there is nothing about physical healing in the entire context of chapter 2. But there is a lot of discussion about sin. This is spiritual healing. The cross was for spiritual healing, that we might have a right relationship with God. 
Now, let's also acknowledge one day our struggle with sickness and weakness and even death will be dealt with. But that is not now. Nothing's guaranteed now. It's guaranteed for the eternal state. In this case, the greatest gift we have is spiritual healing that comes from Jesus Christ conquering sin, death, and the grave. He concludes, Peter does in verse 25, by saying, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So we were like sheep, not wild oxen, not mighty brown bears, not even cute kittens if you like cats, but sheep, foolish, ignorant, wayward. That's who we were, and sometimes that's who we can still be. But this is speaking of who we were prior to trusting in Christ. We returned to Him, or we turned to Him. We recognized our sin. We turned to the Savior. The Savior is the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. Shepherd refers to his care. Guardian refers to his authority. So we have someone who cares about us, but someone who has the authority to accomplish God's purposes for us. He can not only bring us to himself and to his Father, he can ensure that we are kept for all of eternity. So in the midst of all of our anxieties, our stresses, our sorrows, we have a shepherd and guardian of our souls. Present pain leads to permanent gain. We've looked at some of the greatest Bible verses dealing with an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ and all the Bible, and they're found in the context of work. Trust in Jesus Christ's work this morning. Believe in Him as your Savior. Cross over from death to life. That is what this life and the life to come is all about. Do you know what the most popular class ever taught in the history of Yale University is? It's a class on happiness. It's called Psychology and the Good Life. A female professor at Yale decided to offer this class and over a quarter of the undergraduates signed up to take it in 2017 and in 2018. The reason that she wanted to teach this class is at that time, going back even to research from 2013 on, over 50% of Yale undergraduates had sought mental health assistance from the campus. These are some of the greatest minds, the most talented people, and they are struggling, recognizing that that prized internship, the promise of a future job, and making millions of dollars, it doesn't bring about happiness. It doesn't bring about contentment. The success of that class has led to them developing curriculum for high school students across the nation. We're not a happy people. We're not content. We're not living the good life. Yale University is trying to help us. I appreciate that, but here's what I want you to hear. We ought to be the most happy people on the face of the earth right now, right now, during COVID, with all kinds of division and disunity. There shouldn't be people more happy 
than you and I because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the word of God, we have one another. And yet we're walking around, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I mean, we are defeated, we are pessimistic, and that's on our good days. I have never been more excited to be a follower of Christ and to be a pastor than I am today. Our country has never needed the gospel of Jesus Christ and godly biblical churches like we do at this very moment. We should be the happiest people. We should be the most optimistic people. We should know what God has promised He will do and will do in and through us if we only allow Him. We need to pray, God, would you help me to so crave your word that I become happy, that I would love the gospel of Jesus Christ so much that I become happy, I become overjoyed with love. Instead of pointing fingers, getting angry with our mission field. Those that don't believe like we do on masks and vaccines, those that may have different opinions than you do or I do regarding political convictions. Those that have all kinds of opinions of which all of us here this morning have different opinions that we realize we have to be united, we have to be happy, we have to be holy based upon those things that matter most to God. The gospel, the word of God, reaching our mission field. Present pain leads to permanent gains. Let's ask that the gospel would transform us into the most irresistible people and the most contagious church imaginable. Let's pray in faith. Father, thank you that you are a God who has borne our sorrows. Lord, you bore them in your body. You sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to, see, to be seated at the right hand, praying for us that we would be the church of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for complaining, whining, being angry against those who are our mission field. Help us to honor and glorify you. And Lord, may we take advantage of the opportunity this morning to trust in Jesus Christ for the very first time. Lord, may we take our sin and give it to you, the Savior. Lord, thank you for who you are. We love you, we worship you, and we acknowledge you are the good shepherd, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.